0: In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, since our salvation rests on our understanding, believing, and obeying your word, I pray that you would grant us faith this morning to do just that, that in these moments your word would come to life in our very hearts, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it has been said that you are essentially an amalgamation of the seven people that you hang around the most, which for me, I hang around four younger girls, a cat and a dog, which... (laughs) Some of you say explains a little bit, but there is some truth in that, isn't there? The people that you hang around the most, they rub off on you so that you become more like those you are around. I recall when I was in the workplace, there was three gentlemen I worked with in a close office. They were in, in and out, in and out. And a couple of them just were very negative, very critical. They were always fault finding in others and. Every conversation turned into a griping fest, if you will. And I recall, man, after a while, all of a sudden, I'm starting to pick up on it and feed off of this. And it's becoming me. And I'm going, I I don't want this sort of negativity and criticism that constantly was pervading. And so, it's true. This this idea, the people we hang around with, they they tend to, uh, you know, in some ways, encourage us. They encourage us by calling us to be more patient and loving and kind and resilient and strong. Or, on the other hand, uh, sadly, they can lead us to be more cynical, more wicked, more bitter. And so then, what's the way out of this? If this is true, this principle is real, how do you become a prosperous, fruitful, righteous person who stands with joy before the Lord at the end of it all? The answer, I believe, is to read Psalm chapter 1. That if you're like me and you're you're stuck around those who might drag you down, that the real answer is you need to start hanging around a different person. That you need to hang around with someone new and spend time with a righteous, blessed man. The man that this psalm is talking about. And, And Grace by God's grace this morning, we will do just that with our time together here. And so I'm going to unfold this psalm in in kind of a more of a thematic way by looking at first the wicked man. And then we'll see the blessed men and women. And then we'll conclude by finally just looking at the blessed man. Okay. So first, here we're looking at the wicked man. What you need to know is that this psalm, being the very first psalm in the entire Psalter, it sets the tone for the rest of the way that this book of Psalms unfolds, and what the the psalmist wants us to catch is there there are these contrasting persons. There is a council, a way, a, a place that these people sit for those who are scoffers, for those who are sinners, for those who are wicked. There, there's a path. We, well, in New Testament terms, we think of it as this broad road that leads to destruction. That's what Jesus speaks about here. This psalm, though, fits in a category that we typically call the wisdom psalms. And the wisdom psalms, just like the book of Proverbs, oftentimes will put things into very stark, contrasting categories. And, and this is what this psalm does, is it holds somewhat of a mirror up to us, saying, which category are we in? The righteous or the, the wicked? Wisdom literature in general does this. Uh, we've been in the book of Job, haven't we? And the book of Job functions very much like this, where Job, he's, he's writing these responses to his friends and he says, I'm not like the wicked. I, I'm not like this category of the wicked. And we know from the book of Job, it's highlighting this idea that he is a man of righteousness, he's blameless. And so even the book of Job kind of puts it off in these two major categories. So we see the polarization but our but, our culture loves the messiness and moral ambiguity that people can have don 't we? when I was growing up, and maybe it was this way for you when you were going through school it was very there were very clear lines it, it was very obvious so that you knew uh, Abraham Lincoln was a saint, and Hitler was a monster, and Martin Luther King. Uh, jr was a saint and saddam hussein was a monster and you had these very clear start categories but now our, our time in our place we love moral ambiguity uh, we, in the articles that are being written now it's almost like if we want to recast all of mlk so that that uh you know we focus more on his imperfections and we see, you know, there is some truth. He wasn't uh, necessarily the most godly man behind closed doors, for example. So we, we kind of embrace this. And do, do you sense this, that in, especially with social media, the more we're able to say, ah, oh, this man was considered righteous, but look at what he's done here and here and here, that, that our culture sort of feasts on that. There's a feeding off of that. Do you, do you sense that? And, and, and you know what? This is uh, true that at the end of the day, uh, there is a messiness to us. That At the end of the day, there are those who are righteous in Christ and want to reflect their righteousness, even as they continue to struggle with sin. But in the categories of this psalm, it can unabashedly paint with two colors portraying the righteous people as fruitful, but also saying, as we read in verse 4, that the wicked are not so. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. This little picture of this, this chaff, it's kind of a pithy idea. For those of you who aren't familiar with chaff in general or this understanding, it's in relation to bread. Now, if you're like me, I enjoy bread. I love Home baked bread, Um, especially, especially if it's hot out of the oven with a little bit of salted butter on it, yeah, and it's not fully melted in, but mostly melted in. I mean, this is the best, is it not? And so, you, you, you and I, we enjoy these these this type of food because we can just run over to the store for three or four bucks, and here we go. But but in ancient times, it wasn't so. You. You see, you had to grab your winnowing fork, you go out to the field, and you you cut down the wheat, and then you, once you've got a lot of it, you're going to put it in a wheelbarrow, and then you're going to wheel it over to a grinding stone, and you're going to throw these heads of, of of wheat into the grinding stone, in which comes out the flour, but the wheat berry on the outside of it has this little thin kind of fibrous covering, very thin, in fact, and it's it's called the chaff, and so... After you've ground down your flour to make your bread, you don't want to eat the chaff. It was kind of, you know, fibrous. It's it's not, it's like eating a corn husk almost. So what you do is you grab a pillowcase and you put your flour in there and you fluff it up and, and you wait for a wind, a, a light breeze, not, not extremely windy or otherwise your flour blows away, but just a light breeze and, and you just toss the flour and the light breeze takes the chaff and blows it away and it lands on the ground out here and Fast forward after a rain or a few sunny days, and that chap just is—you you don't notice it from the soil. It's just ground into the ground. It's gone away. And the picture the psalmist wants you to see is that the wicked, at the very end of it all, that the, the chap—it's like the chap that just gets blown away. It's—it's it's in the ground. It—it's gone. It'll fade away and And this functions for you and I in a two twofold way one it's encouraging in one sense because our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are under persecution or who are being ran over by the wicked so to speak it, it's it's good for them to know that there's coming a day when when those who are wicked who've come against them in in such terror that there's coming a day when those people it they'll it'll be gone they'll be gone think of psalm twenty three where this psalmist who says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And at the end of that psalm, he says, I'm going to be in the house of the Lord. And that's where I'm going to dwell forever. There's an understanding because he's trusting in the righteous Lord. That his faith is in God and that he's following the Lord. That he will be in heaven and dwelling forever. But but this psalm, Psalm 1, reminds us that it won't be that way for the wicked. They they won't be allowed to be there in, in heaven forever to corrupt heaven. If the wicked are in heaven, then it's no longer heaven, friends. So this is an encouragement to our brothers and sisters, our fellow Christians who are being killed, tortured, or persecuted for following Jesus. But it's also a warning to us. There's a warning here for the wicked, a serious warning that the ways of the wicked will be gone so that the person who lives wickedly Um, they can fast forward 50 years or 100 years or let's just say 150 years and you ask what of the fruit of their life or themselves will remain what will remain so you ask yourself we need to ask ourselves this morning this is a passage to my friends who are not followers of the Lord what will last what of you will last Will your accomplishments and your achievements matter in 150 years? Will anything that you've done in the grand scheme of eternity last? This is an important thing to consider. Arguably, the best sermon ever, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something very similar to this psalm. It's a different illustration, but listen to how Jesus puts it. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a foolish man. Who, who, and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and great it fell and great was the fall of it. There's nothing left. So that even in this morning, this morning, I think there's a whisper to you. I think there's a whisper to all of us saying, don't you want to be part of something that is meaningful and lasts into eternity? Don't you long for an identity that will never be washed away because it's founded upon something that will stretch far beyond this short life of ours. Don't you desire to dwell with your creator, the Lord forever? I mean, rather than building your life upon something that just is sinking sand or as Psalm one says, is just (sighs) chaff and it's poof. It's gone. No friends consider this, consider this. Look at verse five. Verse five, where it says, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They cannot stand because they are done away with. They won't remain. And, and here in this psalm, it's clear that there are some remain. There are some who will be there. They're pictured to go through the judgment. In other words, the judgment, they've gone through it, but in the very end, they're they're sitting there standing. Who are they? I think that these are the, the blessed men And by implication, the blessed women of this psalm, who this psalm is speaking of. And so we're turning now to the blessed men and women. So first, I want to note the obvious, something that's obvious here. The blessed man or happy man is the man who, in contrast, doesn't walk with the way of sinners, doesn't go down that broad road. And we see what he is not like uh, here in this psalm. But more important to us this morning is to reflect on what this blessed man is like positively what he does look at verse 2 his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night you see that word here meditating I think there's a uh, a form of meditation that our culture has really had imposed on it and it's a it, it, it does have some merit it comes from I think Eastern religions that talk about uh, this idea that we're to empty our empty our minds clear our thoughts and now if you're Like me, I I often say, man, I'm thinking these what I call ants. They're automatic negative thoughts. Have you ever heard of that? And so I tell myself i got to squash the ants. So in other words, get rid of the automatic negative thinking. And and so this is good. And part of me wants to just, okay, I'll just stop thinking altogether. I'll clear my mind completely of these things. But if you've noticed when you do this sort of thing, our minds are vacuums. So the moment you put something out, something else comes in. I say, I'm not going to think about this, so I start thinking about that. And then I say, I'm not going to think about that, and then I start thinking about this. There's something about us that's wired that we must dwell, meditate, and think upon something. It's actually very difficult to say, I'm just not going to think about anything, because the moment you start thinking about nothing, you're thinking about the fact that you're trying to think about nothing. And, and, And the reality is, the way God has wired our minds is that, if you pull something out, something else must come in. And what this Psalm is saying is what must swoop into that vacuum is the good news of God's scripture. His word must come in. We have to replace our negative thinking with something that is good and true. And so often I will tell myself this don't, even if there's something negative, I'm telling myself, put this aside and begin to dwell on the good things I know from scripture that are true and right. Right. Because I might say, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure. Okay, where am I sure? What do I know for sure at the very end of it all? And, th- and this meditating here is to intentionally chew on. Um, it's to think on, to reflect, to ponder, to embrace, to dwell on the word of the Lord. Recall at the the, t- the time that the psalmist wrote this, that the law... You know, we read this uh, here, and you know, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and we kind of put this in, in well, to be frank, negative terms. We think, ah, oh, this poor guy has to sit there and get, you know, like the uh, the moral rules and laws, and you just in there re- reading upon it. But if, remember, the law in the psalmist's time was to uh, was a way of saying the entire scripture. Um, it's a way of trying to say all of scripture, which you know brings us from creation to to the fall, to the promises of the Lord, to, yes, of course, the, the moral code and, and ethics, of course. But it's all bound up in this whole story of redemptive sweep of history that, that, that the psalmist is reflecting on. And uh, we could picture someone like King David who wrote many of the psalms. And, and picture King David... The king had a, an edict that he was to grab a copy of the law. In other words, all of scripture at that point, And he was to make his own copy that he would write out by hand. And this forced him to, to meditate upon it. So he's, he begins at the beginning. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning. So he reads in the beginning. In the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. And then he begins to stop. Wait a sec. Let me think about this. I mean, everything I see was formed. By the hand of the Lord, from the stars, those the sun that's so far away. This was all His idea. These relationships that I have, this joy that I can feel at times, and sorrow. This, these trees, these plants, this food. This was all part of Him. And and the king, as he's reflecting, he's meditating, and he hasn't made it past verse one. And you could picture as he's going line by line, doing this. What what a good work it was for him to it, to let God's. Reality and truth sink into the very core of who he is. So you begin to reflect. You ask questions. You ponder as you read through asking, how does this click together with what I understand and what I'm seeing day to day? I was having a conversation with someone out on the porch here last week. Uh, They don't go to our church, but they wanted to engage and understand. So they said, hey, Thomas, Help me understand here. So you Christians, you celebrate um, Easter, and you're celebrating it on this pagan holiday, right? Isn't that what you're doing? Did, did the did the Christians early on decide that they wanted to celebrate this this uh, pagan feast? And I said, well, no, no, friend, you have to understand. Much more is going on here. I said, who created the the lunar calendar that the pagan holidays are often based off of? They said, well, God. Okay, and. Who was it who instituted at a very particular time for a very particular people, this idea of the Passover feast in which it was celebrated? Well, that was God's idea. And when did he say to celebrate it? Well, it was the 15th month in the month of Nisan. I'm not talking about cars. I'm talking about the, the, the Jewish calendar. And you, you understand that That this whole lunar calendar, it was bound up with something that the pagans had also said, hey, we're going to latch ourselves onto it so that the Passover occurred when one of the Egyptian gods was supposed to be most powerful and present. And Yahweh says, let me do it right now to reveal that I am the most powerful, true, supreme God. That I rule over all these false gods that do not really exist. And so, he commands them to put the blood over the doorposts. So that the blood would cover those who in faith did this and they wouldn't die. And you do understand that Jesus, thousands of years later, is purposely coming in so that his blood would fall in the same month to connect us with the salvation that was given to the Hebrews. So that you and I would picture and get the picture and connection that during this time, his blood covers us and saves us. It was all on purpose. But friends, you don't get that. You don't begin to connect these dots without meditating, without asking questions, grab a fellow Christian, grab a pastor and say, I'm trying to piece these things together. Help me understand how this all works together and clicks together because it does. And then begin to see that not only are you to build in an understanding as you meditate upon scripture, but actually something deeper down is going on inside of you. There's an understanding that, that scripture works in a particular way but there's a reason why we also want to meditate upon it. It is so that we grow. Look at verse three. He, this blessed man, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. So if the word of God is to be in us, so it causes us to grow and it's supposed to be like this tree. I was reflecting upon an article I read a while back about trees And in particular, the the trees in Joshua uh, Tree National Park, uh, for quite some time, the droughts that have been going on in, in California, in Southern California, have been threatening these trees. Now, the trees in Joshua National Park, they're living on a knife edge of life. I mean, just, you know, barely hanging on because of the drought. They're just in this really unique little niche there. And I don't know what the update is now with the floods that have recently occurred in, in, in Southern California. I'm hoping that they've refilled the coffers of the wells there and, and hopefully those trees will thrive. But there was worry that if this continues on, the, these trees are going to be extinct. Now, our trees here, we, we, got, we got a little bit different end of the spectrum, don't we? I mean, for us, I mean, uh, our, our trees are all tapped in here to lakes, to uh, streams, to rivers, to springs. So it doesn't matter here if it's raining, the trees are fine. It doesn't matter here if we have our dry summers, the trees are fine. By and large, they do pretty well because they're tapped into something so that they can grow. Isn't this true? And what's true for the tree is true for you and I is that if we want to grow and remain living and not just on this knife edge, barely holding on for life, but truly thriving, we have to be tapped into the good news. That comes from the Old Testament telling us about this coming Messiah, this Savior, and that that needs to warm our hearts. And we need to tap into the New Testament. And, and if we're gonna be fruitful, let God's word speak to us to form us and shape us so there will be genuine fruit in our life. So, question for you Do you tap into that river? Do you tap into that stream? Do you see fruit in your life? When you reflect upon Galatians with the fruit of the Spirit, where we read the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you tap into that? Is that causing growth in you? Christian, do you exhibit this? And if you do, praise God, because this means you've meditated on the word of God. You've been chewing it. You have been nourishing yourself with this life-giving water. And if you find yourself at times dry, as I do, not bearing the fruit that you want, you you just simply ask, when was the last time that I intentionally, purposely said, I'm going to meditate and chew on this word so God can give me the life-giving water I need so I will be truly fruitful? So I asked myself, when was the last time I just intentionally said, not preaching for the sermon, not prepping for the sermon, I just want to sit and enjoy and delight in the goodness of God as he reveals himself to me in his word. So that I'm just going to spend a couple of weeks reading through Romans. I'm going to spend a couple of months reading through the New Testament. I'm going to take a whole year and just focus on the Psalms or some other passage I'm going to gather up other men and women to do this with me because I need men and women to join me arm in arm and do this together. When have you been doing this so that God will truly cause fruit in your life? This is what the, the good work that the Christian does. This is good work because it's the fruitful work that will last. Remember we saw the concern that you and I could do things that in the end, it won't matter at all. A thousand years from now, nobody will care. But every good work that comes out of trusting in God's word and f- learning to meditate upon it, every good fruit that comes of that will matter in eternity. All the good fruit of this will be life-giving fruit that we will rejoice and praise God for millions of years from now. And, And this is true prospering. For if we're not captivated by the word, ask yourself, friend, how will you change? If you're not delighting in some level in God's word, how will I ever deal with the anger problems that I have or the lust problems or the, the issues of holiness or patience or whatever it is that we all variously face as, as as Christians? And I would argue that if you're not tapping into God's word, your roots will dry out. Your fruit will wither up. We won't be joyful people. We won't be blessed. We won't be happy people in God. So there's a picture of abiding fruitful life by tapping into the water of God's word to nourish and feed us and the necessity for the blessed man or woman of God to have this. Now, if you're like me and you've read Psalm one, I think there's two mindsets that we can adopt, which are not good to have. One hand, you read this Psalm and you can say, well, it's a good thing this morning that for an hour and a half, I meditated upon God's word. And it's a good thing this morning that I had the most delightful prayers that you have ever seen before. And it's a good thing that this morning was just like the morning before and the morning before and the morning before. And there could be a subtleness of, of pride in this that's not healthy. On the other hand, there could be a picture that you read Psalm 1 and you say, this is impossible. Who could do this? I mean, has anybody here lived foolishly at times or even sat in the seat of scoffers or lived in the way that sinners uh, have? And, and now you go, it's impossible for me to read this and feel like I could do this. And yet, I I want to argue that that actually misunderstands the rest of Scripture. For if we are the type of person that this psalm describes then it means you're doing the work of synthesizing and growing deeper in an understanding and nuancing these things because scripture speaks with many angles as it turns like a diamond. We're seeing many facets of how God describes the Christian life. And yet remember King David. Is King David, I mean, isn't he a man after God's own heart? Isn't he a a, a man that God seems to delight in? And yet we know from King David's story, what what grave sin to, to have been an adulterous affair to have murdered a good man and then to have lied to cover the whole thing up. What about the other patriarchs? We consider Moses, uh, we consider Abraham, these men of faith. And yet at the same time, uh, men who have committed some pretty awful sins. So then how is it that the, the unrighteous and the wicked would ever be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven, let alone bear the fruit that this Psalm describes. Who who is it that we must dwell with if we're to be amalgamated into a new man or woman? Who is it that we're to be hanging around the most? Well, I've been arguing in one sense. It's just with scripture alone. But I want to look now, if we are to be blessed men and women, I want to look now at a particular man that we must dwell with so that he would then amalgamate into us and we would begin to change. Look at verse one one more time with me. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Okay. William Van Gimmeren. he makes this, he's a Hebrew scholar. He makes this incredible note about this very first verse. He says, you know, when you read these, what are called, call perfect verbs here in verse one, he says, you, you need to understand that actually the way that this is most literally translated would be say that this blessed man never has done these things and does not do them now. So the way you could read Psalm one, one then is the man has never walked in the counsel of the wicked and he never does. He has never stood in the way of sinners nor sat in the seat of scoffers and he never does. In fact, the perfect condition, the way for you language nerds, the, the idea is actually, you could read it this way. He never has, he never does, and he never will. What does this mean for us? I think in the very first verse of the very first Psalm, we meet a very unique and special person. We meet an especially blessed man. This man is perfect. I think you meet Jesus in Psalm 1.1. Don't forget that Jesus himself, he actually speaks about the Psalms in Luke 24. And he says that they prophesy about him. He says the Psalms speak about me. And what I'm seeing here at the very beginning is that this Psalm functions prophesying regarding him about a righteous king who's going to come, this righteous, blessed man who will come and reign, as we read in Psalm 2. But here, he's fruitful and he's blessed, that is happy, that is, he's joyful because he delights. And I think that this psalm really is pointing us forward the Christ, the only truly righteous man, the one who exemplifies this psalm, Psalm 1, perfectly. Isn't that how Jesus speaks about himself, where he says in Uh, In in the book of John, he says, I am this this tree. You read this tree at verse three, that's me. I'm the fruitful vine. I'm the one who bears fruit. He says, I am the true vine and in my father, he is the vine dresser and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Same thing, same idea. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And further, as the word incarnate, this is talking about us delighting, dwelling on delighting and rejoicing in the word. And who is Jesus? He is the word with clothes on. He is the word incarnate. He's the written word personified, we could say. Recall when Remember when Satan took Jesus out into the wilderness and he, and he's tempting them in these three ways and Jesus is responding. And how does Jesus respond? He goes as the written word incarnate, he goes to the written word. He says, it is written man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, it is written. You shall not put the Lord, your God to the test Begone, Satan for it is written. You shall worship the Lord, your God and in him. Shall you only shall you serve? In other words, The chaff will blow away. But I'm here to declare that God shall be worshipped. You want to worship something? If you worship yourself, you'll be blown away. But if you worship God, you will be fruitful. You will grow. You will remain. You will be the blessed man of Psalm 1. Blessed prosperity is for those who delight in the word of the Lord and live in his ways. And as Christians... We can delight and meditate on, on the word incarnate and therefore we can prosper by becoming like the one we worship. Let me just to bring this down in just a few words. Fruitful and blessed Christians, delight in Jesus and his word. I, I, I opened up saying that you become this morning like the seven people that you hang around the most, you become amalgamated, you be, sort of become like them. And this psalm, I think, is inviting us on one hand, rather than to dwell with the wicked, but to join the righteous who feed on God's word, to become formed, to become shaped by the word. And God, through his spirit, will do a work of forming us into being the blessed man. This psalm invites us to become one of the branches that's connected to the true vine. But on the other hand, I've also said this psalm is declaring to us, there is a righteous man who fulfills this psalm. Like you and I never could. Now, as we sit on the other side of Resurrection Sunday, you see how this psalm closes saying the blessed man in the end will stand. That's how this says. It says the wicked won't stand. The wicked are going to be done away with, but the righteous man stands. And this brings to mind on the other side of Resurrection Sunday, this is the lamb who is standing as those slain. That's what the book of Revelation tells us. Which means this man, Jesus Christ, he went through the judgment. And as he goes through the judgment, you can see he's been judged because it's as though he's been slain. He's been crucified. But he stands. He still stands because he is the righteous, holy one. And so this morning, a reminder and a call to you to rejoice in this truth, to believe in this truth. And so a call to you this morning also to meditate, even this morning, on the word. Meditate this morning. Fill your mind with Christ, who is the word. Meditate so that it's not just a 15-minute exercise, but as this psalm says, it's day and night. In other words, this is a meditating that's going on throughout the day as you rejoice. Meditate on the gospel, seeing that Christ is the vine, and you are the branch. And as much as you meditate, you too will be a fruitful, fruit-bearing tree, a blessed man or woman. Would you pray with me? Father, we do pray that your word would shape us, that you will form us into your image. And Lord, I pray that for those of us who struggle to delight uh, in the word, I, I, I pray specifically for them that, they, that your word will bring joy, that when we read it, there will be those moments where the light bulbs go off, but more, that, more so that our heart sings because of what we read and believe. So we ask that you would do this power in us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.